Welcome to the Butterfly Broadcast, sharing stories of transformation after pregnancy and infant loss. I'm your host, Bailey DeMars. Speaking of transformations, this podcast is brought to you by perhaps the most transformative product that exists for your skin, Promycin, an acne treatment that actually works and fast. My cute husband has had acne since he was a teenager, and this summer he used Promycin, and for the first time ever, his back was clear. I'm not kidding. I saw a difference after one use, and five days later, the acne was gone. Promycin comes from the Cara Poloni skincare line, and I love and use all of her products, including micro needle powder cleanser, nano silver spray, healing facial serum, hydrating kiss mist spray, and their lip balm. My favorite part is that every ingredient is natural and supplied by the wholesaler Bulk Naturals. So get your skin transformation started at carapaloni.com or simply just Google Promyosin. Hello, welcome to the Butterfly Broadcast. It's your host, Bailey DeMars, and today we have a very special guest, Andrea Myers. She is someone who I stalked on the internet. I have ran across her page, Grieving Like a Mother, and she says herself, warning, dark humor ahead, and it honestly speaks to so many of our hearts, and I just wanted to talk to her myself, so here she is, Andrea, how are you today? I'm okay, thank you, how are you? Good, and remind me, where are you joining us from? I'm in California. Um... Not like what people picture as California. I'm in a super small, like rural town, like 3,000 people live here. <laughs> yeah, it's like most people's high school is my town. Oh, wow, uh, is that Northern California? We, yeah, we're kind of, yeah, more Northern. Um, Like most people know Sacramento. So mm-hmm. I'm about an hour outside of Sacramento, an hour and a half, like in the foothills, like where the gold rush was. So Ooh, some history. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. A lot of history, a lot of small, just small towns. So. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And is that where you grew up? Yes. Yeah. We moved here when I was five. So I've, I've been, I started kindergarten here. So still here. My kids go to school with like kids that, you know, their parents I went to school with. So yeah. I love that. Deep roots. Yes. Strong, deep roots. Yeah. Old families. That's awesome. And what other things are interesting about Andrea? Um, oh my gosh. I would say we're just kind of known. I'm one of five kids. Um, and then I have, I've had six kids, but I've got five living. And the, so the gender order that my mom had kids is the same as mine. So that was always something really interesting to me and, and kind of what made it you know, even an extra layer of when we lost Tara because she was going to be the fifth baby girl of our family. And so, and that's the same as my siblings and I. So the way that my mom had kids, literally, you know, it was boy, um, boy, girl, boy, boy, girl. And that's how I was having kids. So it kind of just felt like, you know, the puzzle pieces were coming together. It was meant to be. And then she, didn't make it. <laughs> and that doesn't fit the puzzle you had in mind. <laughs> no, it totally, it threw me for a loop. Yeah. So that's 
one interesting thing that I've always kind of thought was yeah yeah okay wow so and your husband is he from the same area he is yeah he grew up the hill a little bit more but like his his grandparents graduated from the same high school we graduated from they're um a very well-known family and we are high school sweethearts so we've been together since we were 16 yeah it's been like 20 years and it's like 36 so it's weird to say that I've been with him for 20 of those years that is bizarre yeah (laughs) time is so weird it's strange yeah well let's just jump into you know how your story started and you know you told us that she was the fifth yes but what was life like you know when you were still in this caterpillar phase of things being pretty normal. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, as a mom of four kids, I had four kids when I found out I was pregnant with her and having four kids was a lot where I was, I'm a kid person. Like I was a preschool teacher. Um, I worked as the family advocate for our Head Start program here, which is, um, you know, amazing. And, uh, So I just, I grew up the oldest girl of my five siblings. And so my mom was a single mom for a lot of our childhood. And I just like mothering just came to me naturally because I think just being an, you know, an older, um, an older girl, and then just kind of having, you know, seen her struggle, um, just always led me to kind of help out with my younger siblings. And, you know, she worked late at night. And so I just kind of filled that role. And that's what I always saw myself being was a mom. And so when my fourth baby came around, I was like, this is so I was really kind of debating a fifth. But but because by my fourth, it was that same gender order, you know, I was kind of like, oh, my gosh, how can I not play this out? Like, you know, but it it was hard. It's I mean, one kid is hard. Two kids is hard. Like it's, it's all where people say, oh, it's relative, right? Like whatever your worst experience in life is, is that's your worst experience. And so for, for moms, I think like whatever feels hard is hard for you. Right. So, um, you don't know, (laughs) you don't know the difference until you get there. So after three kids, I was, you know, that was probably the most overwhelmed I felt was, um, having the three, because when I was home alone with them, that's really where I felt like there was always somebody I couldn't get to. So, you know, we ended up having the fourth and I was just kind of thinking like, I might be done. I I don't know. And I, um, ended up finding out I was pregnant with my fifth, um, kind of a surprise. I hadn't had like a normal cycle yet. And so it was coronavirus season. And so I just, I'm not really sure how, but, um, when I found out I was pregnant with her, my daughter, my second oldest was already, she would talk about her sister and she named her Rosie. So she would talk about her sister, Rosie, and she'd save clothes for her. And she just, and I was always kind of like, well, you know, I don't know. And, um, so when I found out I was pregnant with the fifth, I'm like, okay, we're doing this, you know, we're having a fifth baby and it ended up being a girl. And so it just kind of felt like, yeah, those pieces were falling into place. And, um, at my 20 week scan, she, um, it was noted on there that she had a two vessel cord. And so that was my first, um, kind of hearing about what that might be. It was my first of anything with my, my firstborn, there was like a weird, um, number with one of the genetic tests. And so I had to, 
you know, there's a standard. So I felt like my blood work felt like right outside of the standard number. So I had to go um, just for extra ultrasounds with him and it ended up being nothing. But um, for this baby to find out a two vessel cord, I was just kind of like, okay, I've never heard of this before. I've never had anything pop up in my pregnancies to be concerned about. Um, my doctors really reassured me that it was nothing to worry about that. Um, basically they treat them just with precaution where a small percentage of babies with two vessel cords might have other abnormalities with it. So they make you go for extra testing with the maternal fetal medicine just to rule out anything more serious or other problems with, um, the heart or the kidneys, um, But other than that, they just check the growth of the baby to make sure that the cord can support their weight. So by the time I was like 34 weeks, they were like, nope, you're good to go. Like nothing was wrong with her weight. She was um, a good percentage. She kept tracking well as far as gaining weight. Um, I had already seen other specialists for the heart. They did like in-depth ultrasounds on her heart, all of that. Um, so really just waiting for labor now. And, um, so I realized I kind of jumped into that story. We were talking about life before, <laughs> before, um, no, that's it was, yeah, it was just life before her was just what I would consider normal mom life, right? Like just your normal concerns, normal, um, worries and fears of, you know, sick kids. And my daughter had broken her leg when I was, um, like 34 weeks pregnant with Tara. So that felt horrible because I'm like, I'm huge pregnant and I had to get her to Sacramento to like specialist appointments for her leg. Her cast was set to come off right at my due date. So that was like my biggest worry at the time. And life felt so unmanageable because I, my husband commutes for work. So I've got, you know, these four kids and all their schedules and different things. And then she breaks her leg. She couldn't walk. Um, so I'm huge in my third trimester carrying around my, you know, was she five at the time, almost six, I think six years old with her leg and it's full cast. And, um, so yeah, then fast forward a few weeks later and my daughter dies. And so it was like, what? <laughs> like so shocking. I, um, had gone into what I thought was labor. I was counting contractions all night long. I, um, knew they were different. This was my fifth baby. So I kind of, you know, knew the, how it felt. And, um, I knew her contractions were different, but they weren't, they weren't going away, but they weren't getting worse and they were painful. So I ended up going that morning, um, just because I was worried with it being my fifth baby that once I went into active labor, it would go fast. And, um, my fourth was like that where I didn't have time for like an epidural or anything because he had come so fast. So I was really fearful, um, that that was going to happen. So we get to the hospital and, um, they checked me first and I hadn't dilated. So that was like my first kind of, you know, and, and there's so many more details to the story where I'm, you know, I, I started realizing in the car on the drive up there, I hadn't been feeling her move. And, um, so I'm just like, okay, like just, I knew it just felt different. She wasn't, she was really quiet, hadn't been moving. I couldn't remember the last time I felt her move. Um, and so when I 
realize I'm not dilated yet either. I'm like, okay, this is weird because I was in pain with contractions. So I'm just kind of focusing on that, you know, and the um, labor that was coming. And so they checked me. I wasn't dilated. And then that's when they were like, okay, well, we're going to just we'll hook you up to the monitors for a little bit and um, just see what's going on. And they couldn't find her heartbeat. So, um, so just the shock of it all. Yeah. It, it's just a state of shock. Um, and my doctor told me, you know, that he could only assume it had to do with her two vessel cord, but that we really wouldn't know until she came out. And so then, um, you have to still go through labor (laughs) and deliver your baby. And, um, so it was about 12 hours later that when she, came out she also had a cord knot and so it it took me a long time to kind of like start to question why because this was my third baby that had a cord knot so out of all of my children um now I'm at 50% of my kids have had cord knots but they're telling me it's rare every time So every time a baby came out with a cord knot, they were surprised. My doctors were like, oh, there's a knot in the cord. So so ultimately, her cause of death is noted as a cord knot with umbilical thrombosis, which is a blood clot. Um, But I just started thinking, well, wait a second. Like her two-vessel cord is a factor, you know, to me, because that was something different. So I'm asking you know, the maternal fetal medicine, I asked my doctor, and nobody could really answer me with certainty that yes, it was the combination of the two vessel cord, the maternal fetal medicine actually said, no, that shouldn't play a factor, because you still have the Wharton's jelly, which protects from, you know, protects cord compression, and it protects cord knots. So to me, I'm like, you know, well, my other babies with cord knots, you know, they survived. And so then I'm like, why? why are, why don't we know about cord knots ahead of time? Like, can we see these on ultrasounds? And so I asked my doctor this, he said, you know, if they did see a cord knot on an ultrasound, the protocol would have been the same anyways, which is, um, non-stress tests in the last couple weeks of pregnancy. So I was having those, I was going for non-stress tests. They're 30 minutes long. If your baby shows the reactive heart rate within the 30 minutes, you're sent home. Tara actually had a deceleration in one of those non-stress tests where they kept me 15 extra minutes just to make sure, you know, it got back on track and it did. So they sent me home. She died within 24 hours after that non-stress test. So that's the other thing. I just started looking into, you know, at first I just accepted this is what she died from, a cord knot. That makes sense. You know, I understand that cord accidents quotes, I'm doing quotes, cord accidents happen. Um, But as time went on, I just started thinking, you know what, I was receiving what is known to be like the extra level of care, not the standard. I'm going to maternal fetal medicine. I'm seeing, you know, I'm doing non-stress tests and that still wasn't enough to save my baby. So then I'm like, something's wrong here. Like, you know, and I started searching for more answers because I'm like, if three of my kids could have a cord knot and those are known to be, you know, they say rare, um, you know, fatally, you know, they're not known to cause, you know, a fatality, um, in only rare cases. But I'm like, 
if tomorrow someone gets diagnosed with a two vessel cord and they treat her the same as they treat me, like she's at risk and, and nobody's being told that these are risk factors. Nobody's treating it as an emergency. And, um, it bothered me. So that's when I really started looking into and connecting more with the stillbirth world. Um, because, and that's, and it was just eye opening because here I am, you know, this was my fifth baby and I had no idea how many of us there were. And it was upsetting. And, um, and I couldn't let that die. Like I, I, you know, it was like, I have to, I have to learn more. I have to talk more. I have to connect more and learn more about this because I was mad that to find those numbers out, um, 23,000 babies a year dying from still, you know, and they're not, they're not dying from stillbirth. They are still born. And it's from all of these other issues that we aren't told about. And, and I know for a fact with it being my fifth pregnancy is like the only time stillbirth was mentioned to me was when I was overdue with two of my pregnancies. And they just kind of nonchalantly say, well, you know, we're going to talk about induction because if you go too far overdue, the risk of stillbirth increases. That's all, that's all I was ever told. So Mm -hmm. to learn, you know, that if we were doing more research, if we were dedicating more funds, if we were talked about more um you know people think it's something of the past and so it bothers me and so i just i started like just i guess i had to talk about it right and remind me what how far in gestation was she at this point when she passed away 38 weeks Okay. Yeah. So she was full term. Yeah, she was full term. I had had another baby at 38 and seven days, I think. So when the contraction started, I was like, okay, well, this could be labor. You know, she's my fifth baby. Um, I had gone overdue with two of my pregnancies, but knowing I was full term and that it very well could be labor. That's, um, so I, I wanted to get answers because I'm not sure if she passed away and then labor started or if, labor started and then she passed away like the stress of labor or the cord compressions of her moving down into the birth canal and um I didn't do an autopsy because that was too much for me to even process they ask you these questions in the hospital you know so you have to decide burial or cremation autopsy or no autopsy and because I knew she had a cord knot I'm like I didn't feel like we needed more answers, but then as time went on, I really wanted to know more about the timing of, you know, of it. And so I had learned about Dr. Kleiman and I had reached out to him and in finding all of that, that he could learn so much from the placenta, like how long a a cord knot was there, how long, you know, how many compressions or what were cord compressions happening, which I knew they were because I saw them on the non-stress test, but, um, I ended up finding out that the hospital threw out my placenta and it was never sent to pathology. So I can't get those answers. (laughs) No. Yeah. You're kidding. Yeah. That's so frustrating. So I'm just left with the future of research, I guess, you know, in, in looking into more, um, about monitoring and, you know, the standard of care and, all of that. You know, and I completely agree with you because I feel like the standard of care that typically women receive is, you know, 
okay, just take your prenatals, don't mm-hmm. eat mm-hmm. you know, raw fish, don't eat turkey, mm-hmm. you know, deli meat. And they don't talk about, you know, placental health and they don't no. talk about cord health and things like that. And it's yeah. like, we're not addressing the real issues here. Exactly. It's like, we don't want to scare you. They, yeah. Nobody wants to scare anybody. And so then were these women that end up in this horrifying shock of a situation with no information. And then we're left after the fact to find out all these ways that it possibly could have been prevented had we done these other things. And it, and then you're left to live with that, you know, for the rest of your life. And so it is, it's infuriating the amount of pregnancies that I had had. And every single time they educated me, air quotes again, on the same stuff. So I'm sitting there like, okay, guys, okay, like this is my fifth baby. Like, yeah, I know. Don't change the cat litter box yet. But it's like, well, we have to tell you these things. And it's like, okay, I get it, you know? And so then that really bothered me too, because it's like, I literally knew, you know, they just pass you the binder with all the same, sure, they updated every now and then with a new resource or something, but it's the same information over the last 10 years of pregnancies that I've had, I gotten the same binder with the same information and none of that helped save my daughter. Right. And like you said, if it's happening 23,000 times every mm-hmm. year, yeah. like that's yeah. not just a, a coincidence. No, I think. no. And that's a big thing too, is so many of us are told that our situations are lightning striking And you can literally look at the numbers and the amount of stillbirths happening compared to lightning strikes. It's insane. Like, (laughs) it's a huge cause of child death, but we don't look at it like that. And so it's, you know, every year as moms, you see the warnings about drownings and you see the warnings about um, you know, correct car seats and things like that. I worked in child development. So I, I was one handing these information these flyers out to parents, not even knowing that babies are actually dying in the womb, you know, at a huge, higher increase, a higher rate, but we're not educating pregnant women on that. So are we not valuing a life until it's outside of the womb, you know, and then it gets really deep from there. Like, Mm -hmm. it's crazy. And then, you know, that terrifies you to even attempt to bring another child into the world because you're like, I don't know what happened last time. I don't want to risk doing that to another child. Right. And I, I did, I had, um, what they call a rainbow baby, um, fairly quickly. And it was, you know, it was insane. That's a whole nother probably podcast episode of pregnancy after loss, but the same thing, like there was nothing done differently, even in that pregnancy, except for let's, Let's, you know, take all this precaution, same thing, non-stress test will send you to maternal fetal medicine. But as far as, you know, I, I now I'll tell women at 38 weeks pregnant, 36, maybe check me in, admit me and don't let me leave. Because to me, from like 36 weeks on, you know, really the 38 to 40 weeks is so scary. Mm -hmm. And, and that's what is not you know, they say, oh, don't let these stillbirth moms scare you. And, you know, it's so rare and blah, blah, blah. It's like, scare me, please. <laughs> because no, being scared empowers you with information to, to do something different or to pay more attention. Like I was one of those moms, like, don't read that stillbirth story. You're going to scare yourself. Don't, you know, don't listen to, to that. It's not going to happen. It's rare. And I, 
admit that, you know? And so now I'm like on the other side of it, like read it, please. Like all the information that you can gather, gather it because you're going to pay more attention instead of just putting it out of your brain and thinking this isn't going to happen to me. Like empower yourself with that knowledge because it could save your baby's life. Absolutely. And I just hate this stigma that's like, oh, once you're past 12 weeks, you're mm-hmm. safe. Once yeah. you're past 20 weeks, you're safe. Yeah. But like you said, that last few weeks too, that's just so crucial because, you know, mm-hmm. they're running out of space and so little things matter with yes. the cord and with the placenta. Yeah. And the movement. And we aren't – yes, you go – weekly typically at that point once you're 36 weeks for a weight check and they measure your stomach but as far as like ultrasounds if you think about it they're all done in the first trimester when we can't do anything about it we can't save a baby's life you know so why are all of these scans done so early and we're not doing them later when we can actually save the life Amen. And I'm like, they already have the machine. Just put it on your belly. (laughs) Yeah. And so it's like, yeah, well, why aren't we? Does it come down to insurance? Does it come down to, you know, what is it coming down to? Because, because it doesn't, it just seems backwards. I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. And so, you know, I am so curious how that like ooey gooey mess of you, you know, losing your daughter, how that led you to be brave enough to create an Instagram page about it. Like you said, you were so curious and you were researching. So what led to this specific page you developed? Um, I think just, you know, like I started myself researching and came across and then I, and I listened to podcasts and I, you know, started learning about these organizations like push for empowered pregnancy and measure the placenta and all of these, um, these lost moms that are, were helping, you know, get the word out there basically. And I just, I, you kind of realize in that first year and a half, like who you can talk to and who you really can't, who's not going to get it. And I started kind of sharing things on my regular page, my regular Instagram page every now and then like about our, our, um, about our loss or about, um, pregnancy in general. Um, and it felt good. Like it felt good to share something and get feedback from other pregnant moms too, or, or just women that I knew wanted to be pregnant and then say, Oh my gosh, I've never heard of this. Or, Oh, my doctor didn't tell me about this or what is this? And, um, kind of just bring light to some women who had, been experiencing infertility or miscarriages, you know, that were kind of keeping it to themselves. Like all of a sudden when I shared something about pregnancy loss, like they felt comfortable talking to me privately. And, um, so it just building kind of connecting over that and like realizing there are people that want to talk to us about this. So then I just, I needed a place to kind of be more vulnerable without like on my regular page, if I would share something, I'd get like a, uh, influx, I don't know if that's the right word, of text messages from people worried about me that day. Like, you seem like you're having a really hard day because I shared one thing, right? And so I'm like, no, you know, like I'm just sharing. And so then that started to feel kind of weird. Like, okay, like people that don't get it, because if I go five days without saying anything and then I share one thing, they're like, oh, I'm going to check on her today because she seems really messed up today. And it's like, no, I'm messed up every day. And so I just kind of like found like I need a separate 
place to share about this because it felt too much to to constantly be sharing on that page of people that are just like out there living their lives, you know, like, and then they just like, it just kind of felt, I didn't want to think that much about the people that were on the other end. So kind of like starting that o- my own page to just like get these thoughts out um, without being worried about the people that that saw it, knowing they're not going to worry about me in, in any kind of way or that they're going to get it or that they're going to take something from it that's going to help them really led to me starting that page because I just could put my thoughts out there. And even just the making a graphic like felt therapeutic to like use colors and pictures and texts and, you know, and um, so that's really where that I think it started um, was from just feeling like my old or my other Instagram was not the best place, you know, but that there was a need out there for this information to be told. Absolutely. So somebody could seek it out. The right people can yes. seek it out. Yeah. And yeah. like I said earlier, I really like the take you've uh, like the handle you've taken on it of of being able to, you know, kind of just make light of the reality of being messed up. Yeah. 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 <laughs> because it's it's reality, you know, like it's yeah. It a lot of it doesn't make sense to a lot of people, but the people who it does make sense to, they just can actually like laugh instead of cry all the time. Yeah, because like we're still people, right? With like complex emotions and and we're a lot darker than we were because something very dark happened to us. But like we still have to deal with all the regular life too. And humor is a huge like people say with working out and and all these other things, like it releases endorphins, like to laugh releases endorphins, like it feels good. And there might be a split second of after laughing where your brain kicks back in and it's like, that was wrong. Like you're upset. Like, why are you laughing? You know, and you have to deal with all of that. But for that short time, that little laughter, like, you know, like it felt good. And, and I feel like when you feel so bad, like you just look for any way to just feel good. And even if it doesn't make sense or feels like disturbing or whatever, like that's what it is. And it, and if it makes somebody laugh or it makes me laugh, like so much of this started just to help myself, like, you know, and, and being able to help someone else along the way, like is just an added benefit. But but yeah, the dark humor for sure. Like I was a funny person before all this. And so being able to kind of hold on to that is it makes me still feel connected in a way to my old self. Like, a, you know, it's I joke about different things now, but being able to still joke and not just be so depressed and sad all the time is is helpful, too. I love that. Like we've acknowledged you're a changed person. You'll never yeah. be the same person you were before. Yeah. But you can still be connected to the yeah. old Andrea and you yeah. know bring the best of both worlds together. Exactly. <laughs> and and the ugliest of both worlds too. Yeah. So what advice would you have for a mother going through, you know, a stillbirth that like you did? What's something you wish somebody could have said to you at that time? Um, well, I'll tell you what someone did tell me. She, a, a very close friend, um, she lost her son in a car accident when he was 14 years old. And she has been like such a 
a source of peace and comfort for me because she's, you know, 20, I think 23 or 24 years post loss now. And she told me, you know, like it will always hurt, but, but one day it won't hurt so bad. Like, and so I just like held on to that because I'm like, if she could go through what she went through and she's still alive because you really, the pain is so great. Like you feel like it should kill you. And so that's one of the hardest things to deal with is like walking around the world, feeling like you have suffered an injury or a wound that was so heavy and deep. It should have killed you. So I just couldn't see a future for myself. Not that I was like thinking that way, but I just, it's like, how can I live the rest of my life without my daughter? How am I going to do this? And knowing someone who has done it and been doing it for years, for her to tell me one day it's not going to hurt so badly. Like that was such a hope that I held on to. And I'm only two years, two and a half years out. And I can already say that I feel that already happening to where it's like, you know, I remember shortly after, like, I couldn't laugh at anything. Like nothing was funny. I, I was broken. Like even my kids, my other living children could not light my heart up like they used to. And I was like, this is bad. Like, this is deep. This is dark. Like I, I, I'm messed up from this. And, and as the time goes on, like it definitely does not heal you. And so that is so aggravating. And I think a message that needs to, you know, be told is that time does not heal all wounds, but the feelings around the wound changes. And Mm -hmm. I love that people say your grief stays the same, but you grow around it. You know, Mm -hmm. that, that is so true. You, you just, And you can find a way to incorporate your missing child into your life. And that felt so weird for me to do at first. Like I just, I couldn't, I couldn't even, you know, I kept her box of ashes in my closet and I I couldn't even look at him for the first year. I couldn't ever see myself like setting up a shelf dedicated to her or anything. And it kind of just slowly started even with jewelry. Like I got my first piece of jewelry that represented her, my sister-in-law, she sent me a ring with her birthstone and I haven't taken it off since. And that was my first feeling of like, I still need to be connected to her and incorporate her in my life somehow. And, um, People might think I'm just focused on my loss, but I tell people like we all we think about our kids all the time as moms, like just because one dies or isn't with you, like you never stop thinking about them or talking about them. And so just because my story of one of my children's connected to sadness doesn't mean I'm not going to think or talk about them any less. If not, I'm going to think and talk about her more because she's the one I'm worried about. She's the one I can't keep safe. Like she's the one I don't know where she is. And so your brain as a mother and there's been studies done on this, like it's constantly searching for the loved one that's missing because it, your brain like doesn't compute it. It's like a misfire. And so it's okay if you're thinking about your missing child, it's okay if you're thinking about your loss all the time, it doesn't mean it's consuming you in a negative way. And so I just, for moms that feel like they might be stuck in their grief, like there's no such thing. Like you, you, you just, you figure out how to carry it with you. And so whatever you're feeling right now, just know that it's it's not going to always stay that way. And it doesn't mean that you're not doing something right. So I don't know. I could go on and on about Amen. this. 
I love it. No, I think that's so validating. And I really like what you said about your, you grow around the grief. Yes. Like, yeah. I can visualize that and I can, yes. I can make sense of that. Yeah. Cause you'd like, this is never going to shrink. This is, you know, the grief that, and, and, and learning about grief and how it is love. Like that was so eye opening to me because grief, you know, it's not until you're in the grief world that you hear that and learn that that's what grief is. It's, you know, of course you're going to have this magnitude of grief and sadness because you had the love that was, you know, this huge magnitude. So that grief is never going to shrink and get smaller, but you as a person will grow around it and you learn how to carry it in a different way. Mm-hmm. So beautifully said. I love Thank that. You. So if somebody wanted to reach out and talk to you, would you be open to, you know, receiving a DM on Instagram? Yeah, absolutely. I've had people and I love it. I I, I hate it. Honestly, I hate it. I'm like, no, not another one. Like, no, but, but I just, and it's so upsetting in a way too, to see how many women every day are joining this world every single day, you know, another one. Like I, I just lost my child in November and I'm like, doing the math. Like that was like three weeks ago. Oh my God. Like, you know, and, and it's amazing to see because I know how long it took me to kind of reach out. And so to, to know that, you know, that they feel comfortable enough to reach out to me. Um, I love that. I, and I started to, um, a small business called the grief closet, which I have another page where I make clothing for, grieving people, bereaved mothers. Like I just started, that was part of my therapeutic process too. Um, so I have those two pages and I love to connect with people on there and just help them feel seen. I love that. What a fantastic idea. So it's the grief closet. Yeah. The grief closet. And then I have grieving like a mother and I, and I kind of post simultaneously on both on the grief closet. It's more just the stuff that I make than the grieving like a mother is a lot of my feelings yeah, <laughs> and like content information and resources and yeah yeah I love it wow I'm gonna have to go find the other page and stock yeah. it now <laughs> yeah go find it awesome well Andrea I really appreciate you sharing you know your butterfly journey where you are right now with it and how far you know you have grown around your grief and also just helping spread awareness of stillbirth and the issues with healthcare that lie around yeah. that. Yeah. So you keep raising your voice and I'll keep following you on Instagram and yeah. we can interact. Yes. So again, thank you so much and we will be in touch. All right. Thank you.